0: Visit iConnections.io. Welcome to the On The Tape Podcast. I'm Guy Adami, always joined by Dan Nathan, but today we have a treat. Lori Calvicina is with us, head of U.S. Equity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Lori was last here on August 11th, and I will tell you, for those who remember, she was spot on in her assertions and some of her thoughts then, and my sense is she will be again. Later on, Danny Moses and I will sit down talking about a lot of different things. Crazy gold move over the weekend, Sunday night specifically. Crude oil, WTF, That's what people say? No, there. they
1: say WTI. WTI. Ah, oh, I see what, I see what, what I did I you did, did yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And of course, week 14 in the NFL, so stick around for that. Lori, how are you?
2: I'm great. How are you? It's
0: great to have you. I mentioned August 11th. Obviously, a lot has happened since then. And, you know, I think you weren't cautious on the market, but you thought some strange things could happen. And everything you talked about back then, because I went back and looked, has come to fruition. Here we are, early December, year end, markets doing well. Just from that point in the summer till now, what sort of sticks out to you?
2: You know, I think seasonality is one thing that's interesting. If you look back at the last 10 years, August, September, October have generally been pretty fraught. November is consistently a good month and it's absolutely met with that playbook, and December's more of a toss up. So I feel like the last few months have made a ton of sense just based on the recent history.
1: Back in early August at the time, we had just come off a high in, in the NASDAQ and the SP 500. There was a lot of enthusiasm coming into Q2 earnings period at the time, and some of the biggest names in the Mag7 were making new all-time highs, Microsoft and Apple and the like here. And it was interesting, though, that something happened where a lot of those companies beat and they raised, but they didn't beat and raise by enough. And the stock market started to sell off. A lot of investors were just saying, listen, that made sense. And it did make sense. There was a lot of froth in the market. Flash forward when you came on August 11th, we are kind of on the tail end of Q2 earnings season. What were some of the things, though? I remember you thinking, I'm not exactly bearish on stocks if I'm thinking out towards the end of the year, but I don't love the setup right here.
2: Yeah. So we wrote this piece in early August and we were trying to emphasize the nuance. And I know everybody, Likes things to be simple, and sometimes markets aren't simple. And that was just one of those times. And I think the things that bothered us were the seasonality. We'd started to get questions on the election, which seemed like a big air pocket of uncertainty for markets. Our sentiment indicator was looking a little frothy, not crazy frothy, but looking a little stretched. So we felt like between that and the seasonality, you're due for a bit of a pullback. And honestly, the other thing that just bothered me is we got through this reporting season where companies said a whole lot of nothing. And I found investors were really struggling with that. And we saw the next couple months, really after Labor Day, when we were on the road, people kept using the word stuck. They were paralyzed. Kind of 2023 was written off at that point. In 2024, it was too early to figure out what to do. What I didn't see was the big surge in interest rates that we ended up having, and I think that's one thing that really stuck a lot of people. By the time we got to early November, we'd worked the sentiment indicator down, and it did, was sort of at the exact opposite place of where it was in early August, and interest rate fears had, had caused that to happen.
0: Well, let's talk about interest rates, because I think on August 11th, I think 10-year yields were about 405-ish, maybe 410. We know what happened. Went up to 5%, seemingly off to the races. Bill Ackman exited his short treasury position, coinciding with some sort of, I guess, softer CPI data. And now we're sitting here today, basically round trip the entire thing effectively. Does that mean anything? I think the bond market is critical, but again, the volatility we're seeing in the bond market suggests, in my opinion, that we still have some potential equity volatility on the horizon.
2: I think volatility is a great way to think about it. I do think we're going to have a good year next year. I'm definitely not in the bearish camp. We've still got some very bearish strategists out there, and I'm certainly not in that camp. But I do think we've got some wood to chop. Our sentiment indicator now on that retreat in yields is back where it was in early August, and that's sort of a negative short-term signal, but not necessarily a bad longer-term one. What I noticed was really... After we kissed that 5% number, I was up in Montreal, and they were putting up the Christmas trees. This was right after Halloween. Thanksgiving is earlier. And it was like Christmas. And it was seriously talking to investors was like talking to kids on Christmas morning. They're like, "Okay, yields have peaked. What do we buy? And all of a sudden, people were unstuck. And so we were talking about small caps and healthcare and things other than big cap growth. So I think the direction of travel and the path we've gone down and the fact that even though we are at the same level, we're headed in a different direction and there's some faith that we can continue down that path. I think that's been constructive, despite the fact we feel a little frothy again right now.
1: Let's talk about that, because this is interesting, a little inside baseball here. Um, You know, our producers uh, for CNBC, I just sent an email to one of them. They said uh, they want to know for tonight's show, what's the most important chart you're looking at? Okay. So to me, Guy and I were just going back and forth on some different ones. And I've tried to make this case. We've had a lot of great strategists like yourself on the pod over the last you know, few months, and we've been debating less, like you said, about where 2023 ends. Like The the cake is baked here. You what I mean? So really, it's figuring out next year a little bit here. To me, and I think back to my career, and I started in 1997, I was at a hedge fund, and I just remember there was a lot of volatility and a lot of different risk assets, but they weren't as picked over by as many people as there are now, right? There aren't all these podcasts and, and all this stuff talking about it. So I guess what I just sent, the most important chart to me, and this is just in, in what I know from being in the business over, let's call it the last almost 30 years now, is like when the Fed starts raising interest rates, okay, and And then they start doing it aggressively to cool things down. They pause, right? And and then people get really excited about the pause. That's what we had over the last couple of months in the equity markets here. It's really when they start cutting that's not good for stocks, right? So if I'm those folk up in in Montreal and I'm excited because the, the, the Fed paused in July, right? And then there was expected to be another rate hike this year that got pushed out. And now all of a sudden, we're seeing rate cuts being priced into Q1 of next year. So if I just overly the chart that I just sent to our producer of the S&P over the last, call it, 30 years, okay, and then the Fed funds rate on the upper bound, I look at it and I say to myself, I don't want to be buying stocks in the near future here because when they start cutting, it will not be good for stocks. Does that make any sense? Because from 2000, we got cut in half in the S&P. 2007, we got cut in half when they started cutting in 2020. And again, that was a black swan event. But the S&P sold off 35%. Thoughts on that?
2: The history around rate cuts and what it does to stocks, it all depends on kind of your starting point, your time horizon, how many decades you go back. And I can make the case for some near-term volatility around drawdown. But I do think that you see things that are hopeful signs. For example, small cap stocks. I covered those for seven years back in the day. It's a very good sign for small caps and risk assets within the equity market in general when you do get the Fed to start cutting. And what's interesting about that is if you get the small caps working and they've been starting to have some good momentum again, that suggests there's something bigger going on with rotation. And rotation would pull people out of the MAG7 and the big cap growth. But because of the concentration issue, you have a healthy undercurrent, but maybe some damage to the top of the market that you have to work through? And I think it's just a very different kind of cutting cycle that we're going to be going through this time.
0: Give me a sort of a two-parter here and we'll sort of dissect it in pieces. I was going to ask you that. Small caps versus these growth names. The chasm between the two groups is probably historic. So it resolves itself one of two ways. Those big stocks get whacked or these small caps, the Russell catches up. I mean, I know there's a chance that both things happen, but one of two things are going to happen effectively. So I think you believe that this is an environment where small caps can start to catch up to these growth stocks, which have completely outperformed.
2: And look, I think when I look at the big cap growth stocks, I feel like they're starting to lose their advantage on earnings. And that's something that was really distinct at the beginning of the year. A lot of people miss the fact that we basically had an earnings recession in those big cap growth stocks last year. And the first half of the year was defined by recovery story. Then Value and Cyclicals had their earnings recession in the first half of this year, and now they're coming into recovery. So you just don't have these big cap tech stocks as the only game in town from an earnings perspective anymore. And they look crowded and they look expensive. One of the things that's been coming up in my meetings recently is GDP forecast for next year. I find that most people I talk to think they're, if they're not right, and the number of next year I think is 1.2% on the mm-hmm. consensus, but if they're not right, most people would take the over on that as opposed to the under, and if you start to to get a big lift in GDP forecasts, that's going to be good for small caps. That's going to pull people out of some of those big cap growth names.
0: Okay. So here's my second part, okay, because I'm i with you, I underst- totally get it. I mean, I think historically GDP is like 2.2%. So if you're listening to this podcast, it's Friday, chances are the job numbers come out already. We're doing this on Thursday afternoon for context. But it appears to me as if the unemployment rate is starting to trend the other way, which might be great for the Fed, but I don't necessarily know how good it is because it's coming at a time where bank credit seems to be contracting. So when you have an economy predicated on people having jobs and buying things on credit, when credit is going away at the same time, jobs are seemingly going away, that's not particularly good, in my opinion, for small cap stocks, small, medium businesses that employ, what, 70%, I think, of the population. I know you have thoughts on that. I'm just curious, what do you think about
2: it? Yes, I would say small caps, a good rule of thumb is that whatever economic problem is coming around the bend, they price it in way early. And they've been pricing these things in way earlier in this particular kind of post-COVID environment that we're in. But if you look back over time, one of the strangest charts I've ever seen in my career, and it took me a long time to make sense of it, but it looks at the small, large relative performance cycle against the unemployment rate. And guess what? When the unemployment rate starts to move up
0: outperform. That's
2: usually around the inflection. Because small caps tend to underperform late cycle when you're heading into a recession. And by the time... I'm a strategist, not an economist, but I'm as unfunny as an economist. Um, I mean,
0: that's, a, that's a statement <laughs> that I use <laughs> from time to time.
2: But my joke in meetings is by the time the unemployment rate starts to rise, whatever economic pain is upon us, there's nothing left to fight about. There's nothing left to debate. And by the time you've seen it in that particular stat, small caps have already figured it out. And you tend to want to buy small caps midway through recession. I don't think this is a recession. But whatever this sort of economic pain period is described as, I think it functions the same way for small caps. Yeah.
1: Okay. This is a great spot to spend a little time on. Because the small cap index, the Russell 2000, is $2.7 trillion in in total market cap. That's 2,000 stocks, people, if you're paying attention, at home a little bit. Is that why they call it Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You just figured that out, right? So So, so hold on. So the S&P 500, 500 stocks also. Amazing. What you learned. Yeah, like, it's amazing. All right. So let's just think about that. So that is the market cap of Microsoft. Yeah. Okay. So we talk about rotations, right? Like it can only help so much. The Russell is still down 25% from its all-time highs made in late 2021. So we think about that. And I think a lot of what you said about the small caps sniffing it out a little bit when we're going to go into an economic malaise. I, I could make the argument that a month ago, the Russell 2000 was trading at levels that it had not traded at since late 2020 and traded horribly. Okay. So the fact that... That we've had this kind of knee-jerk reaction to yields coming in from 5% to 4.1%, it makes sense that the Russell 2000 small caps would outperform. And they haven't outperformed that much. They're up about 14% versus an S&P that's up nearly 12% or so. To me, it might be sniffing out the thing that you think it is. And then I go back to what you're saying where 1.2% in expected GDP growth for next year after we've had this gangbusters 5% print and everything like that. I say to myself, okay, you have a lot of optimistic portfolio managers who want to take the over here, I say what could they get wrong? And and obviously, for 1.2% consensus, if we were to have a recession, that means two consecutive negative quarters of growth, and and they could be wrong really easily. You know what I mean? Maybe small caps are actually telling you that they're still down 25% from the 2021 highs, where the S&P is just 200 points, which is just a few percent away. I
2: I think it's fair. And look, my my joke in quotes in my meetings these days is, as a strategist, everyone wants us to have these 90% conviction calls. And any Anyone who tells you they have 90% conviction mm-hmm. on anything today is lying. I think it's more like a 60, 70% kind of world and like your calls are more likely than not. And You have to be intellectually honest about that. If I'm wrong and we are a late cycle and we're entering into a bad recession small caps you know, will look back and say that they were, as you said, sniffing that
1: out. And let's say we get into the new year and some of the the money just keeps going into the stuff that's worked, which is what I would expect to happen. Let's say we close here 4,600 or something like that or whatever. I think that a lot of the things that people were pretty geeked up about all year long, they're going to continue to be until there's some sort of data point. If if we get into late January into Q4 earnings season and let's say a Microsoft or something like that just has a a miss and, and a guide lower or something, then it's over. Okay. And you might see relative strength, let's say, in the small caps. But let's just say small caps start acting poorly. Let's say yields firm up to maybe head back towards 4.5% or something like that, and they start going back towards their lows. Is that the thing that might cause you to take another look at the S&P 500 target of 5,000? Hey, listen, we're not that far away from it. It's 4,600 right now.
2: Some people are pegging me as this massive bull, and it's it's really not that far off.
1: 7%.
2: Yeah. But look, I think if the small caps break down, what we've seen this market has a remarkable ability to do is rather than when a problem emerges, as opposed to taking the market down, there's sector rotation Mm -hmm. within. And the sector rotation that would happen would actually be favorable to keeping the S&P afloat, just in terms of putting money back into the things where the market cap is the most concentrated in. So it's a very complex set of cross currents right now.
0: It was pretty clear that sentiment got pretty negative I don't know, a couple months or so ago as we troughed. It's fascinating to me that people will be very quick to point out how bull bears reverse when the bears are dominating. But when things flip the other way, for whatever reason, it doesn't really make its way out there. Yet as we sit here today, the script has been flipped. Look, I don't know what's going to happen, but... As bearish as people were a couple months ago, that's seemingly how bullish people are now. Does that concern you at all?
2: It it does. And we we wrote about that in our weekly this week. So if you go back, I forget the exact date. It may have been like August 7th. But early August, AAII got frothy to the plus one standard deviation mark. Then early November, it was to the minus one standard deviation mark. And we're not quite at the plus one standard deviation mark there. But we're like within, you know- basis points of it we redid our back test to be honest on that indicator and tried to parse out the three-month return versus the 12-month forward return and then we also as opposed to just saying when you're above one standard deviation what's the return what's the return between one and two and above two and that was a really interesting exercise and it left me with the idea that it's okay to come up and kiss one as long as we get out of it pretty quickly and don't go to two, doesn't mean we don't have problems over the next three months in the short term. But it shouldn't necessarily you know, make you crazy bearish over the next year. We've got some problems to work through, is what it's telling me. Does it sort of add to the idea that we might have a weak start to the year? Absolutely. But it is oscillating very quickly right now. And we've seen it just move so quickly, even in the last three, four months. I think you have to be a little bit careful about making a 12-month bet there right now.
0: You get momentum on the upside over durations. Downside happens very quickly. So this momentum can continue, which you could see a one standard deviation go to one and a half or two. And seemingly, and you're looking at it like, when's the sell-off going to happen? As opposed to the flip side of the coin where it happens very quickly and then it resolves itself. We might be in for that type of period over the next few weeks into the next month or so.
2: My third strategist, unfunny joke. I've complained lately that whatever people think about the year ahead, it always gets baked into the stock market in November and December. And people like me, we put all these forecasts out. And they came out later this year, by the way. Most people came out after Thanksgiving. They should have come out a little bit earlier. Yeah. Even I was late and I came out on the 22nd. At any rate it's painful right because you come and you put these forecasts out around thanksgiving and the market does whatever it does in december and everyone has to rewrite their reports in january but it is annoying right but there is a rationale for it which is that in the fourth quarter in december people are getting set up for the year ahead mm-hmm. and we'll find out over the next month really what's consensus what's overdone Where's people's logic wrong? Including mine, by the way. You know, I'm subject to this kind of stuff as well. And then we'll have to adjust in the first quarter of the new year. So this is a dynamic process. Yeah.
1: Well, listen, we have the benefit. You come on Fast Money quite often. You're out there. You're writing each week. And there's a level of transparency that I think is really helpful. Guy and I, we have the ability to stick to our guns. We're not strategists. We're not your hedge fund manager or like your broker or anything like that. And we're just calling things the way we see it. And we don't have the data at our disposal that you do. You have have these really great quantitative models. You also are out in the field talking to your customers every day, and you have real time sentiment sort of stuff. So when I think about heading into, and Guy just mentioned this, sentiment late last year was about as bearish as I can remember. Obviously, let's take the COVID period out in spring of 2020. So we obviously, we went the other way, right? But heading into the year, I don't think many folks had on their bingo card that AI was going to be this thing that just infused so much excitement and enthusiasm in the stock market, which like, again, all of a sudden, people were just throwing out valuation. They didn't care about that anymore. And then if you think of the regional banking crisis, when you think about 2024, what are some things that could be positive catalysts or negative catalysts that, that are maybe not on a lot of investors tip of their tongue right now? The,
2: the biggest thing to surprise markets is always the thing that nobody's thinking about at all. I mean, you even saw that with Russia, Ukraine a few years back. I, I think as we, we go into next year, I've got things on my mind like the election, geopolitics. One thing nobody's talking about recently, and it's certainly not on my bingo card right now, but I think we've seen the street move to the idea that inflation has been killed. I worry a little bit about that coming back. And again, it's maybe... Be 5% risk in my head, right? It's not part of my base case. But we spent a lot of time this year talking about 1945. That's really the only time a recession was never priced into the equity markets. And it was emerging from post-war economy, transition back to normal, removal of government stimulus, healthy underneath the surface, but technical recession, job losses. And what was interesting about that period is if you look at it from an inflationary perspective, inflation cooled that year. I think it was only around two percent or so, but it had been raging prior and it came raging back in 1946. And the stock market fell. I forget exactly how much. I think it was maybe like 12%. But it was a pretty nasty drop, even though the recession was over and the job losses had stopped and all those healthy undercurrents were still there. Nobody's really talking about deflation either. But I just wonder where that risk of inflation coming back conversation has gone. That's just totally disappeared.
0: It hasn't gone from the rhetoric out of the Federal Reserve, who, despite the fact that I think We had a conversation with Liz Young earlier. I think five rate cuts priced in next year, starting in March, if I'm not mistaken. But it's not in the back of any of the rhetoric from maybe some fringe Fed people, but Jerome Powell has not indicated any pivot whatsoever. To your point, that 5%, mine is probably closer to 25.30. It doesn't make me right, doesn't make you wrong, whatever. But I still think that This Federal Reserve may be focused on the mid-1940s, clearly on the early 1970s, when I think, again, they probably thought they had slayed that inflation dragon only to have it come raging back a year or so later.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's fair. You know, when I talk to my economist and he shows me his CPI heat map, everything's in the green. And I really do wonder if maybe we've gotten a false sense of complacency, but I guess we'll see.
1: That's something that's on Guy's radar. And we'd like to just at least bring those points up because it seems like right now, at least the stock market is discounting. They're focused on a handful of economic indicators, and they think that that dragon is slayed for all intents and purposes. When you think about just crude oil, though, let's talk about this like a major input because a lot of strategists are always thinking about gas at the pump and what it means for the consumer and the like here. So we've had this move back towards $70 in crude oil. And I'm looking at the five-year chart going back to the high in 2019 and 20 was $70. And other than that period in, in late 2021 and in 2022 when geopolitical stuff, right? So there was disruption. There's a lot of stuff going on with OPEC. And then we also just had the expectation post-COVID to your point about what does a post-COVID economy look like? There was a lot of enthusiasm about that. But here we are, we're knocking on the doorstep step of 70. And I wonder, talking about deflation, talking about weaker than expected global growth, talking about geopolitical scares, I'm not sure what's priced in right now, because you would have thought after what happened in early October with the terrorist attack in Israel and the war that's come about, I would have thought, higher. You know what I mean? So help us make some sense of that.
2: I wish I could. We should get <laughs> Halima on the phone. Yeah. Can we call a no, friend? No, she was on a but couple weeks ago. On. She
1: was great, actually, by the way.
2: But I'll, I'll tell you that the conversation around oil right now reminds me of conversation about 10-year yields back in the fall before they hit 5%. And I remember there was one Powell press conference. I forget which one it was. And I remember I, w- I was listening to it after the fact. I was off that day. So I was listening to it on somebody's podcast. And I, I, I just sat there and I said, not even Jay Powell understands why the, the yeah. treasury yield is moving as much as it is. And I feel that way. About about oil right now. I will tell you the last couple weeks I'm not sensing a lot of panic about it from long-only investors. They're sort of mystified as well on the oil price, but they're starting to look at the valuations of the stock. So we just need the commodity to settle down. What confuses me about it, right, is that we have this moment where the market really seems ready to rotate. And energy benefited from that impulse to rotate over the summer. Now small caps are benefiting from it a little bit. But you would think that energy would benefit from that kind of value-ish type rotation, and it's not. It's a very confusing situation right now.
1: Do you do you worry about some of the economic readings we're getting out of China and some of the actions that they're taking, I mean, it seems like they're really trying to support the economy. They're stru- trying to support their markets. It's not doing a whole heck of a lot. The Shanghai Composite's very near 52-week lows. A-, a lot of the actions they're taking almost seems panicky. We know that they're on the cusp of some major credit issues as it relates to the property sector and the like, and we know how exposed their consumer is. And I, I just worry that all of a sudden, Guy says this all the time, careful what you wish for. They were dying for 2% inflation as it was working its way up towards 10. If it- a deflationary spike spiral exported from China, would that be positive for risk assets?
2: I think that the U.S. gets somewhat insulated because you would see a rotation of capital flows into the U.S. And we actually did see over the summer when people got too optimistic on the Chinese recovery to start the year. When those flows peaked and came out, a lot of it did end up surging into the U.S. and our growth funds in particular. So I do feel like, yes, the word deflation is a very scary one. I don't think that's necessarily good in general for the U.S., but I think we get buffered just because of that safety trade.
0: A few weeks ago, probably longer than that because time moves very quickly, but Moody's came out on a Friday and put U.S. credit on their watch list, whatever that means. And I think maybe the market felt it for a day or so. I thought yields would go higher from there, and they really didn't budge and they're significantly lower since. We've seen them uh, downgrade China. Given our debt to GDP here, it would almost be, they wouldn't be doing their jobs unless they, Moody's and S&P, unless they continue to comment or make some, is that a concern whatsoever, a potential debt downgrade of the United States?
2: It's something we obviously keep a close eye on. It feels like with every one of these, the market reaction gets more and more muted. And it feels like What I think investors are discounting is the idea that they're making these calls late after the horse is already out of the barn. So I wouldn't say people are totally unconcerned, but I I think there's a sense of maybe they're coming out a little bit late and maybe for good reason, right? So as not to add to the panic. That's kind of how I see it from a sentiment perspective, that they're letting the market digest the issues first and then they're making their
1: changes. We started out with some of the expectations for this year and some of the things that happened and what you're expecting next year. And when you think about your 5,000 target in the S&P, and again, we're very near 4,600, we're a few weeks away, barring any sort of external factor, it seems like the S&P probably closes plus or 2 3% from current levels. What do you think the path to your target of 5,000 is? And and, and again, I, I know it's really hard and, and we just talked about those with certainty and the like here. And I feel like if we were to have a sort of blow off, break out above this year's highs and, and try to get back towards the january 22 all-time highs i feel like the higher we go in the near term is the harder we might fall at some point in 2024
2: i generally sort of agree with you in terms of the setup to start the year but i do again i know i keep using the word complex but with aaii where it is and the fact that next year is a presidential election year presidential election years usually start off with a sell-off and then you see the market rally back and get choppy around the election but stabilize and then have the year-end rally but you do even with trump and biden right you saw sell-offs to start the year. So that's got me a little worried that we might come in and see just a little bit of a downdraft. We're also, I had a question from someone today about Europe and, you know, kind of this idea of the rotation broadening out. So if small caps are doing well, will Europe, which is also part of the value trade, do well? So could you see some rotation early in the year out of the U.S. and into cheaper markets? That could certainly get you on a difficult path. I'd say over the next few weeks, how many other people are saying that? Because, you know, if we go back and analyze what we did wrong over the past year, one one of the things I got wrong was, you know, I fell into the trap. A lot of people did that said earnings estimates are too high for 23. They have to come down and therefore the market needs to, to tank. We figured out pretty quickly that was consensus and then we pivoted. But that's made me a little bit hesitant to pound the table on sort of a negative start to the year. But that is a risk we see growing.
0: Something you believe, and this is fascinating for me, the multiple for the S&P 500 is too cheap at these levels. So I don't know, I think we're trading 19 times, you know, again, ish, right? Everything is ish. And in the way I look at the world, if things are slowing down in what potentially could be a meaningful way, like why would you pay up in terms of multiple for a declining macroeconomic environment? But you think a number of different things, but I think the baseline is you think the multiple should be higher. Can you explain that?
2: If I think back over the past year, it's not necessarily the last few weeks, but the last year, you hear a lot of people saying market should be trading at 15 times or 16 times. And recently, maybe that's crept up to 17 or 18 because things have been a little bit hotter than anticipated. I've been of the view that we could trade around 20 times or a little bit higher than that, the low 20s-ish. And the reason for that is, and look, I can't speak to the work that other people are doing exactly. I have a hunch, based on myself trying to reverse engineer things, that people are looking at post-GFC correlations with 10-year Treasury yields. I know people like forward PEs. I I did this exercise maybe nine months ago, but at the time we did a correlation between the forward PE and 10-year Treasury yield, and it said based on where the yield was, you should be trading at 16.2 times in the S&P. And I have a different model. Right. You know, I'm a student of history. My model goes back to 1962. I only have trailing PE data back that far. That That's what I got. Long so, enough. Right. But I like the history of it. And I like the fact that it captures an intense inflationary period of the 70s. I am a strong believer that people who are doing work based on post-GFC period exclusively are not understanding where we are right now. And I don't like to use the term where we are in the cycle. I think that we are the beginning of the post-COVID era. And we're trying to figure out what is the right valuation of the market? What is the right level of rates? What's the run rate on GDP? What's the run rate on inflation? We don't know these things yet. We're trying to figure them out. And I think you have to look at relationships over multiple cycles in different kinds of environments. So I like the fact that we our valuation model goes back to the 60s, and we basically plug in inflation. We use PCE, Fed funds. We use the effective rate and then the target rate once it's available. We use GDP, which is frankly a garbage indicator. I could take it out of the model. It wouldn't matter. But people like to, you know, put in an assumption. It's easier to do it than to fight with them. And then we also have 10-year yields. And I think that's why the model starts in 62, because that's when the 10-year yield data starts. But at any rate, when we plug all that in and do a four-variable regression and put in consensus expectations for where all those macro variables are supposed to head, it tells me I should anticipate a 21 times PE at the end of this year and a 23 times PE at the end of next year. Now, if I take those numbers and put them against my earnings numbers, my earnings number for this year is more or less consensus. It tells you to look for 4,700 on the S&P. Guess where we are right now. That's been my most bullish model all year. And for next year, it says we could go as high as 5,300 if my earnings number is right.
1: It's interesting. We spent a lot of time this time of year last year talking about what is a trough multiple. Right now, we're talking about where markets are are in a bull market where they should be trading. You know, they mean on a multiple basis. But if you took out the top 10 names in the S&P 500, again, that's, you know, the, the 490 guy they were trading at 500 yeah yeah less the top 10 490 less but, 10. but there was a lot of analysis you probably were quoting it too that there were the like large swaths of the stock market they troughed where they should trough at 13 14 times or something like that and maybe that's the new normal because you see all of these the top 10 stocks this decade versus last decade I'm fairly certain that five of these top 10 at uh, 10 years from now are still going to be in the top 10 or whatever and maybe that's what changes because you're just willing to pay a higher multiple for a smaller group of stocks that just have crazy monopolies. They have huge moats. Just think about it, and and they actually have their fingers on what is likely to be the most transformative technology that we've seen in our careers. Does that make some sense?
2: I think that makes sense. And you know, I'll tell you the other thing I like about my valuation model. And I know I'm talking my book, but we it's based on an average trailing PE, and it captures the 70s. Right, my my old boss, my very first strategist I've worked with was Marshall Acoff, and he used to always talk about the nifty-fifty. And so we've got a little bit of that baked into the valuation model when you did have this concentration issue, right, and these stupid valuations in a handful of stocks.
1: Just just to be clear, you're painting a very constructive picture on S&P earnings, on the economy, on what the market should do, on what investors' sentiment should be. Guy and I, I think we have like different nuances between our view. I'm hard-pressed to think that when the Fed starts to cut it's going to be like they're going to be able to put the banner up and say mission accomplished, soft landing because soft landing is the consensus now, Guy. Just talk to us like that's how he and I are feeling. We just want to lay that out. We don't want to think our viewers or our listeners, we brought you in here. It, it sounds good that we're, you're changing our mind right now, but we're very open to it. Would you say?
0: hundred percent. And listen, I, I love your work. It's incredible. And all the years we've known each other now, I mean, that's one of the people I look to is you. And I respect what you're saying. Again, through my lens and it's important for people to understand, like I was raised in a Wall Street sort of but can go wrong will go wrong. So I'm clearly the half empty person all the time. So I'm looking for the next shoe to drop. And maybe it's a function of what happened in 08 and 09. And then the early stages of the show and understanding you don't want to lead people astray and all those different things. And maybe I'm being too hyperbolic, but I just, it's important for me to sort of put it out there the way I look at the world. And and
2: I think it's important, right? And again, we go back to that 60%-ish kind of conviction level, but I'll tell you, I think a lot about what I've lived through and we're all the product of our experiences in this business, right? We all have our formative experiences. I started back in 2000. Another joke, but I always say I was the poli-sci major when they were giving away jobs at the peak of the market in March of 2000 and ended up here. But I lived through and I very vividly remember 0203. And then I had moved over to a different firm, or I guess I did it shortly after, but I lived through the GFC. And I very vividly remember also 2010, 2011. I think I was on a mountain in the top of Norway, like when the U.S. debt downgrade happened. I was like, on this train, looking at my CNBC app, riding all the way down, ignoring the beauty around me. I think what's been really helpful to me this year in keeping a cool head and trying to look through a lot of my own concerns has been we have these periods after every major shock, at least the ones I've lived through. We had 0203, we had 2010-2011. You go back to 0203, it was messy normalization. We had aftershocks from the prior crisis in terms of World Common and Run, the regulation on Wall Street that came out at 9-11 and then the lead into the Iraq War. It was a horrible time. It was full of angst. If you looked at 2010, 2011, it was very similar. And we, again, we had the debt downgrade. We had the European sovereign debt crisis. Both periods, we were all constantly afraid of tipping back into another recession at best and major crisis at worst. And I think that's what we're going through. I think we're going through the same thing where we just have a crisis of confidence right now.
0: Lori, it is great to have you join us again. August 11th, last time. If you want to go back to the archives and listen to what she had to say then, I encourage you to do so. We will definitely have you back in 2024. Hopefully, it may be march so we can look at the first quarter of 2024 and sort of what we're looking for in the second half of the year type of thing. But thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks, Lori. And by the way, stick around because when we come back, the great Danny Moses and I have a lot to chat about. See you on the other side. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome back to the On the Tape podcast, Guy Adami. And joining me now, you know who it is, the great Danny Moses. Demo, how are you? You know who you are. You look marvelous. Let me tell you something. You look marvelous. And I feel marvelous. Now... I want to ask you a question. I'm not looking to put you on the spot here. Hopefully you know the answer to this. Oh boy. Do you recall what your wedding song
3: was? Okay, that's a problem. That's a well, problem. That, yeah, I, and, I was thinking of my rehearsal song. Oh, it was a Carol King song. I, I can't remember you. Well, that's me. a problem.
0: And hopefully, your wife isn't listening to this podcast. Oh, my goodness. But you can think about it whilst I
3: say a few things. I will. T- I'm thinking 1960s, 70s. I was married in the 90s. You caught me off guard. I'm going to get it in a second. Anyway, please continue. <laughs> my wedding song was The Way
0: You Look Tonight by Fields and Kern, I believe, made famous by the great Frank Sinatra. And I mentioned that.
3: Don't you ever change. There you that.
0: go. And during the course of our discussion together, you will, in fact, think of the song that you danced with your then bride and current bride at. Think about that. But I'm going to mention this one of the great wedding songs, I think, of all time. Comes oh, wait, I got it. Now and Forever. Now and Forever. See okay. that? That's saves. beautiful now great and song. forever, Please continue. which plays yeah. into this. But one of the great wedding songs is from the wonderful Etta James, recorded in 1960. The name of the song is At Last. At last, my love has come home. And on Sunday night, Danny Moses, as I was sitting down watching the football game, somebody called me and said, do you see what's going on in the gold market? Which I had not because I wasn't paying attention. But on Sunday night of this past week, Gold at its zenith was up some $62. And I mentioned at last because you and I both have talked, along with Dan Nathan, that the gold market was finally going to start to show itself. And you know what? It happened on Sunday night. So at last, I thought we saw the breakout to the upside in the gold market. Now, obviously, that reversed pretty dramatically. At one point, up $62, reversed almost $100 so we wind up down some 45 or $50. But I'm here to tell you, and I want to start our conversation with this, the gold market, which we thought was in play for the longest time, is now absolutely in play, given what we saw Sunday, and I think given what we're going to see over the next few weeks. Thoughts
3: on that? Yeah, it was definitely a wake-up call. I think people scrambled. Now, I called you that night because you used to trade the thing, and so I wanted to get your opinion on it. and Obviously, there were stops that went off and all kinds of stuff that probably happened. The news was that there was a bombing of an aircraft carrier drone tried to attack the U.S. carrier in the Red Sea. There was some stuff going on there. There was an attack, supposedly, in Peru on a gold mine. There was some macro things, which is part of the theme, obviously, for gold that were going on at the time. And I think, if anything, it just woke people up. And maybe they, they probably bought it poorly. They finally got on the train at Twenty-one twenty-five or something. But I think it is a wake-up call. And I think, obviously, that was a new high, a multi-year high, uh, or an all-time high, I should say, I believe, guy. And I think now we've settled back in, but I think we will test it again soon because there's nothing going on right now. Again, I've been saying, as you can call us bears on the market, but I basically turned a bear into the market into a bullish on gold, meaning if you're bullish on the market because the Fed's going to be cutting rates, then by damn, you better be Long gold, because if we're gonna be pulling that off.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. And now I wanna give me a second here because I want to set this up. And I think we both believe correctly or incorrectly that so much of of the global markets are predicated or built upon or contingent upon central banks, what central banks are doing, specifically our Federal Reserve. And I think there's this thought out there, correctly or incorrectly that somehow these central banks are all-knowing and they got everything under control. So I think those sentiments are out there, and let's just put that out as a sort of a given for now. But in fact, if that's true, that they're the all-knowing and they got everything under control, then my question to you is, given that backdrop, why in 2022, last year, did central banks buy approximately $71 billion worth of gold, about 1,130 or so tons, and now this year, which is going to end in a couple weeks, are on, basically are on par to do not only the same, but actually a little bit more. So if central banks are all, what do they see in other words? So if you're given the fact that they're seemingly doing everything right, they are buying gold for a reason, Danny. One of the things that I've said for a while, central banks are hedging what I believe is their own ineptitude. So if you have the belief that central banks got it, they're buying gold. So if you think they got it, they're buying gold. So by those definitions, you, you absolutely then have to be bullish of gold, I would think.
3: Yeah. And I think if you equate it to Bitcoin, if I could for a minute, just in, this, in the sense of it appears that Bitcoin's in very strong hands. We said that $15,000 ago on Bitcoin, and that's the case. I think gold's the same. I don't think we're going to have a move in gold from 2000 to 3000, which would be the same type of move. But what I'm saying is the point you just made those central banks aren't selling anytime soon. So they're hoarding and buying. So now if you get any type of institutional demand, we've seen what a hint of the ETF market can do to crypto, right? Imagine in retail, if it makes its way in. So I think it's got a long way to play out and listen, you can be long this and long the stock market. I think both could work here. If your belief is that Fed cutting rates is going to make the markets go higher. That's a whole different discussion, but I'm not in that camp. But you can own both as somewhat of a hedge. You
0: know, I agree with you there. And it's interesting because both you and I have talked about, and and this dovetails around the gold conversation, both you and I, Danny, have been concerned about what's going on in Japan. I've highlighted it. You've highlighted it. We've done it together independently. We were concerned about the weakness in the yen. So the dollar against the yen, I want to say topped out around 152.5 or so. So that speaks to a weakness in the yen, which we thought was alarming at the least. As we sit here today, some things have happened where dollar-yens all the way back down to a 143 or so handle, which doesn't sound like a big move, but I'm here to tell you, in the currency world, that's a big move in a short period of time. So People will say, well, that's good news, isn't it? And, you know, listen, maybe some of the concerns around Japan have been
3: assuaged by this move, but there's still a lot of uncertainty over there, Danny Moses. Yeah, so, Guy, the next Bank of Japan meeting is December 18th and 19th. And so, with that, the Prime Minister of Japan met with the BOJ governor, Uita, yesterday. And I guess Ueda laid the foundation for the ending of the NERT policy, the negative interest rate policy, which has been in place for a very long time. The market, again caught off guard by this. So to your point, the yen traded in a range, it strengthened straight down to just above 141 at one point. We're settling in around the 143 level. That's basically a straight line from kind of 147, 148, right? So that market caught off guard. What did their yields do? Their 10-year yields went from 0.65 to 0.75. And then obviously these are big percentages moves in terms of where they came from. But to put in perspective, their two-year yields are four bips. It went to nine, and their five year bits went to 12. Why is this important? It's important because the relative yield levels of Japan and the U.S., granted, they're still pretty wide, but if they shrink over time, it could make the Bank of Japan and investors in Japan sell U.S. treasuries. For the first time in a while, I think last month, we saw a drawdown, I want to say, of 30 or $40 million. Dollars, still, still the largest foreign holder. It's over $1.1 trillion. But the point is that these are the type of moves that you have to pay attention to. To be fair, on the flip side, we were saying that the Bank of Japan should do something to defend their currency because we, we've been talking about this for months of why people should care. But, Guy, I think it's indicative of, of something else. And I'm going to, this is really important. And this has been going on now for years. Just the volatility in all these instruments that we talk about. We just talked about gold. For gold to go up and down basically in a $100 range in a period of several hours is insane. For the end of trade in that range is insane. We've seen what the US Treasuries do, we talked about the LME and nickel a while back, and all these things that are occurring. The banks are no longer the strong hands that can hold this as intermediaries, is my point. And so I just want people to realize that these type of things that can occur, they seem to stabilize over a period of time. But imagine two, three, or four of these certain things occurring at the same time. And every time we have one of these moves, yes, there's someone that makes money. There's someone that's getting carried out. And so to me, it's just a matter of time. And I'm not trying to, that's not a thesis on the market in general. It's just something to be aware of. Volatility in every single asset class that is out there And then you see a move and then you try to solve for why is it there? And sometimes it makes no sense at all. This one obviously makes sense. So we'll see what happens at this next meeting. And then they have the follow meeting in January where they actually may end NERF. I'm fascinated by it. I think it's
0: absolutely worth watching. And again, I don't think it's over by any stretch, but you touched on something in terms of volatility. Now, the bulls in the U.S. equity market would say the volatility of those other asset classes lend itself to the reason why you should be bullish of equities here, because it's a safe haven. It's a flight to quality in the form of the U.S. equity market. And quite frankly, if that's been your thesis, to a certain extent, it's been playing out. My pushback would be, Danny, and I'm curious as to your thoughts, the volatility we're seeing in the bond market, as you mentioned, in the currency market, in some of these underlying commodities, the move in crude oil, for example. We start to talk about standard deviation moves that are clearly not reflected in the equity market with a volatility index either side of 13 or so. So I've thought most of the time, incorrectly, a few times correctly, that it was just a matter of time before that volatility found its way to the equity market. But right now, it certainly appears, again, with a viX at 13 or thereabouts, that the equity market is looking past all of this.
3: Yeah, and I think if your input you're looking at to buy or sell equities are U.S. treasuries and what they're telling you, right? You, you, you just painted a picture that, oh, 10-year yields drop from 450 to 420, let's plow in because why? Because the economy slowing, because the Fed's done raising, and the Fed may cut again. My theme at the beginning of the year is going to be when the Fed first cuts or when they cut more. Why aren't you cutting more? What do why What are you doing? Why aren't you cut? so you're going to hit this level? There's an immediate gratification element to this market today. Of give me a reason to buy it right? And if you're using these inputs, which is why these things are so important, as I mentioned before, price of oil. We can talk, I know we're going to talk about that too. What does that mean? That's a positive for the consumer, positive for airlines. What if it jacks back up $7? Do you sell them all? My point is that you need to have a thesis stronger or understanding that you're going to have this type of volatility in all of these inputs. We are now from a rate cut chance in January for the Fed is 16%. was zero a month ago. We're 62% and a chance in March, it was 22% a month ago. That's what's driving this market. So I'm a big believer that the, the VIX to some degree is the cart and not the horse on what leads everything. everything. We use it as a measurement and I use it more just to tell me how complacent things are over a period of time. Inevitably, we see these spikes every three or four months, sometimes every three, from 13 up to 19, and then it settles back. in. so it'll happen again. I don't know what will cause it to happen, but it will happen again for sure, guys.
0: So it gives. it's a great segue to what I want to talk about. And first, I want to apologize to our listeners and our viewers. I've been a person that all of, I would say for the better part of 2022 and the entirety of this year, I've been very positive around the energy space. And at times I looked very bright. I don't look particularly bright now. As I sit here, Exxon Mobil is trading around 98 bucks or so. As a matter of fact, I think we're basically making a new 52-week low. The OIH is cascaded lower, below 300 I mean, it goes on and on. And by the way, this is in the month or so after these announced deals. The Exxon deal doesn't look like it's going to happen, but we had Chevron, Oxy, all these different names seemingly in the space with M&A. Clearly, it's, to a certain extent, unbeknownst to me at the time, that marked the top. But the move in the underlying commodity has been fascinating in a word. And it comes right after OPEC, again, seemingly got their act together, OPEC Plus, and they were going to make cuts. Again, should have been supportive of the price. It was for about 24 hours or so. And we're right back down. Now, I want to say something, and I'm curious to your thoughts about this. We had Paul Sankey on Fast Money a few weeks ago, and he too, along with, I believe, Halima Croft still, very constructive around the commodity and the equities, the underlying equities. But one of the things that he said that sort of haunts me is, you know, if OPEC doesn't get their act collectively together, and whatever they do doesn't work, what you could see, Danny, is the Saudis flood the world with oil, something they have done before, which is obviously not particularly constructive. So they could basically say, you know what, F you, this is what we're going to do. We're going to flood the market and let the chips fall where they may. So I will say this. I want to be clear. I'm still positive on energy, but man, oh man, what we've seen over the last couple weeks—it definitely
3: tests your metal. You have MBS in Saudi Arabia literally hugging Putin as he comes in with a handshake and a smile. So this is what we're dealing with in this world. That says a lot about what's going on in the world in general. Listen, I, there's two ways to look at it. People look at it as a sector allocation. So I'm going to come out of energy, go into tech, or whatever I'm going to do. If you're still bullish on the economy overall, then you have to be buying oil here. Because if oil is actually down because of economic slowdown, then you better wake up and understand that is a precursor to something. There are a lot of indications of this. It's not just oil. You said, I'm a buyer of Exxon Mobile here. It's not so much trading it as it's just buying and owning it. Now your dividends on these stocks are going to be north of 5%. Let's keep in mind how strong their balance sheets are. Let's also keep in mind, Guy, these deals, I believe, were stock deals, So it affects, obviously, the entire complex. That being said, this is not the first time these energy companies have been through cycles. And let's keep in mind also that oil traded below 70, took out a couple of funds out in the UK not too long ago, proceeded to trade back up to the 90s. I still think we're in a range. And if you were to tell me now we're going into the low 60s or high 50s from here, you know what that means? It means we have world peace, which we're not going to have. And it means we have a massive economic slowdown, which is not priced into the market. And we have other issues to think about. So own the quality energy companies. Don't be selling them here, the, the ones that own, and and don't let oil be the be-all end-all. These companies are prepared to handle. And the other thing, obviously, gasoline supply is at a multi-year high, I believe, right? And that's one of the reasons I think we're we're seeing this kind of sell-off. It's confirmation negative bias, I think, in energy is feeding on itself. I'm a buyer on dips of energy stocks here.
0: So as we sit here on a Thursday afternoon, to be clear, uh, we're awaiting a jobs report as you're listening to this sometime Friday when you're listening to this podcast. So I'm of the belief, Danny, and I'm not suggesting I'm right, but I think obviously the Federal Reserve, although they won't say it, they want the unemployment rate somewhere between 45 and 5%, and just the way they wanted inflation higher. I said, be careful what you wish for then. I'll say, be careful what you wish for now. Because what I think is going to happen is a non-linear move higher in the unemployment rate, where it starts to stair-step up to somewhere between 4 6 and 5%. To your point about a slowing economy, when you have a U.S. economy that is predicated on two things, people having jobs and spending money, and their access to credit. Bank credit is contracting and the unemployment rate is going up. Those two things together don't paint a particularly rosy picture. Obviously, sitting here now, I don't know what that number is going to be, but my sense is we're going to see a continuation of this theme as the unemployment rate starts to tick higher. Thoughts on the
3: implications there? It feels like the market's set up to the number no matter what it is. If it's stronger than the ADP indicated it was going to be great, we're still on strong footing, but hey, we still might get a rate cut. If it's weaker, great, pull forward the rate cuts, but we're still fine. Everything else is indicating it's fine. But I listen, unemployment has one direction to go. You could get a tweak down one month from 3.9 to 3.8 because the strike ended somewhere or whatever, but the trajectory, and if you listen to the Goldman Sachs conference, a lot of companies, they don't care what the Fed says. They're doing their own. These credit companies are saying 4.2, 4.4. 4.6. They're projecting what they need to project for their reserves. I care more about that than what the Fed does. But as far as trying to, quote, trade this number, it won't matter because this will be this won't be out till tomorrow morning. Anyway, I think you could paint it any picture you want. I like to listen to what the Walmart CEO said in an interview the other day. I think it was on CNBC about Black Friday, about the pull forward in demand, about how there's still weakness out there. Nothing cataclysmic, but it's still weak. So I think that's why oil's down. I think that's why rates are down. I don't think it's any other reason. And so, again, don't try to trade the numbers. But the bigger picture, guy, I think, to your point, is things are definitely slowing and unemployment has one way to go. And we'll get into
0: some. I think it's higher. And you spoke about the Goldman Sachs at a financial conference that coincided with a bunch of these bank CEOs up on Capitol Hill, which I found to be somewhat interesting in terms of some of the commentary. But what did you glean from either one
3: of those or both of those? I think the Goldman Conference was kind of a non-event. You really learn anything new other than what I just said. Companies are setting up their own credit reserves based upon what they're seeing, not what the Fed is seeing, which is good. And the banks, for the most part, are fine. There's some stuff here and there that are probably actionable, but I didn't look at it close enough. The bigger thing is the bank CEOs were at the annual Senate Banking Committee hearing, Liz Warren and everybody else that was there. And it's really about the banks pleading to not implement these Basel III regulations, which would literally require a tremendous amount of capital to be set aside. And the argument is that's too much capital set aside It actually will hurt mortgage rates because we'll be tighter we'll have to charge higher it will hurt our, our ability to lend i'm sure there's some truth to that it was funny though they asked diamond about the fdic he says he wants to take over the fdic because that's how bad they are and then david solomon made a comment someone asked me goes, there's too much government debt i'm concerned with your own house not being in order that it's going to cause issues that's what you should be focusing on and what they all agreed on was the crypto should be regulated securities so all the banks you could see, they, everyone could read in the room on that for the most part. So it was a scheduled event, posturing all over the place. And I think Basel III will end up getting pushed out, maybe not changed as much as pushed out over time as we get into the first half of next year. And they realize that the, the U.S. government has allowed this non-bank financial system to grow, that they can't keep track of all of the things that are out there, right? It's much harder. It's easier. We may not love it when it's gathered in the big banks and you can see where the risks lay. But they've been spreading this out, which you could argue is healthier for quote, the system, but is harder to track in terms of where do things stand. So somewhat of a non-event, but somewhat always entertaining. The regulation
0: opens opportunities, and you've talked about this on our podcast for private credit. Like somebody will step into the void created by regulation and banks pulling back. Of course, private credit stepping in is not going to step in at the levels that banks lend money. It's probably going to be 2x-ish. And from what I've read, A lot of these small businesses are now basically borrowing money north of 11 or so percent. You start doing the math and it's very hard to understand how these things play out in a positive
3: way. That's just me. One other comment guy which kind of brings in this private credit is that Ken Mollis mentioned private credit. He thinks it's a good thing because he thinks it spreads the risk and it makes credit available, etc. I won't comment on that. But his other comment was on M&A and how he believes it's going to start to pick up in 2024. And lo and behold, while he's sitting there, we get another deal announced, obviously, Abby again, going into the market. And he's saying that basically, you've seen nothing yet. And that was part of the thesis. When you start to think about these large banks, look what these comps are going to be. If that window does actually open for some of these big Wall Street banks on M&A, the Morgan Stanley, the Goldman, JP Morgans of the world, those are pretty easy comps to compare when you think about how absent investment banking in general, for the most part, has been. But on this particular trade guy, Abbey makes a bid for a company called Cereval, $45 a share in cash. It's an $8.7 billion deal symbol, CERE. Interesting on this one is the stock went from $26 on Monday to $37 yesterday prior to this announcement of $45. That stock in the call option market normally trades about 320 contracts a day on average. It traded 51,000 over the last three sessions. So someone at Trade Alert Data says, Quote: this is 100% suspicious. So I'm sure the SEC do a great job investigating that, but M&A is on the horizon.
0: One of the topics that are near and dear to our hearts, Tesla, labor problems. There are a lot of things around the Elon Musk universe over the last couple of weeks, not least of which a potential selling of shares in one of his larger
3: companies. Thoughts on that? There's a lot going on. Uh, with him. So let's talk about Tesla before we talk about SpaceX. So the mechanics union in Sweden is upset because Tesla doesn't recognize unions there. And in conjunction with that, Norway and Denmark have both agreed to not export any Teslas to Sweden. And so again, back to the Starbucks kind of call that we had a couple of weeks ago, which by the way, is down 10% since Red Cup Day. These union things tend to just build in Musk has faced them before, and they tend to go away. It doesn't feel like this is going away. Your third and fourth largest markets, I believe, for Tesla in Europe behind UK and Germany are Norway and Sweden. And so if there's any solidarity there at all, however, switching to SpaceX, which he uses to keep people hostage to do everything else that he wants to do by threatening to cut off their Starlink access if you don't adhere to various other things, of which I'm sure that Denmark, Norway, and Sweden use Starlink. There's rumors in the marketplace there's going to be, they're calling it a tender, they're selling shares. So insider selling potentially at a valuation of $175 billion in SpaceX. The rumored amount is between $500 million and $750 million, I believe, that's going to be sold out there. So this is not raising new capital. This is insider selling, which I assume would include Musk. So keep an eye on that. But the the, the Musk show goes on. One
0: of the stocks and companies near and dear to your heart, which by the way, was having a miserable summer into the fall, the stock I think traded north of $27 ish, only to trade as low recently. I want to say as like 11 and change. GameStop, which has had a huge move to the upside, and again, business whatever indictment, no comment. But the move from seemingly a $12 to $16 is happening overnight in percentage terms. That's a pretty big move, and you're still talking about at least market cap wise, five
3: billion dollar company. What's going on in GME, Danny? They reported it's about a five billion market cap, and had been moving up to the fourteen or fifteen level. And today, on a revenue miss, and I think is an earnings miss, but it doesn't really matter. Exit tax gain. So what happened today was that the board of directors, which is basically Ryan Cohen has approved the new investment policy. So basically they've been investing in treasuries, which not a bad move over a period of time, short-term treasury. So they were, you know, making tens of millions of dollars a quarter on basically $300 million of treasuries. They have about $1.12 billion in cash or $1.15 billion in cash. He's now going to be the chief investment officer as well as the CEO of GameStop. And he's going to venture out of treasuries into private and public securities. As a matter of fact, they're going to allow him to trade these and trade personally. And they may even trade the same security that they said. But I ask you, this guy owns 12% of GameStop, $300-something million worth of, of GameStop. And here he is, $100 million buyback available in GameStop, which is his biggest holding. And instead of The company buying back shares, he's going to be just be doing personal trading. So now you're turning into talk about opaque, no conference call again, right? They had an interim CFO. They have a new CFO. There's no news coming out of the company to me. And listen, he's still under investigation from the SEC, from his involvement that came out in September of his trading of, of Bed Bath and beyond. And so this is, to me, guy, just insane. I'm pretty much out of the name. It's fine. I made money trading it. I'm not going to deal with this shit because I know he's going to be trading these. He may trade privates he could have tokens in there that they mark up. So again, GameStop reported, they missed the revenue, the business continues to shrink. In the middle of all of this, the only investments they've been making outside of buying their own shares, which I'll get to in a second that they haven't done in a couple of years, is to buy US treasuries with kind of the cash available. Cash has been dwindling. It's just under 1.2 billion now. So now they're giving Ryan Cohen the ability to do anything he wants with that money in, in the equity market, privates, publics, and I'm sure it's obviously long only. But here's the thing, GameStop has $100 million left, a little bit more on their own buyback. It is his largest hold it, right? It's everything he has. He's, he bought 36 million shares a couple of years ago. He's added about 844,000 shares since. He's the largest holder of the company at over 12%. If you're a GameStop shareholder, you got to ask yourself the question, what better investment is there other than GameStop, which you're running? Why are you going to go mess around? And listen, he's still under investigation from the SEC in terms of what he did with Bed Bath Beyond. So if you're the SEC and you see this change in investment policy, you got to ask yourself the question, how can this even be allowed? But. I'm pretty much out of the stock guy. I actually traded that one fairly well. I'm not going to deal with this nonsense, but people, come on. If if you really, he's still in this thing and you believe this guy's a portfolio manager, have at it because that's what he's going to try to do to make money in the company instead of trying to fix this thing. So. Good luck to everybody out there in the GameStop, but it really was mind-boggling they would allow something like this. This is the $100 table, as we used to
0: say, so tread lightly and have some trepidation moving forward. But listen, it's still something that's talked about seemingly, not necessarily on a daily basis on the network, but we talk about it often in terms of day-to-day coverage, so stay tuned for that. What you also have done relatively well this year is your prognostications in the NFL, league where they play for pay. We have reached week 14, and please uh, educate me as to your record as we sit here today. 22 and 16. 22 and 16 is Yeoman's work, I would say. Well done by you. Uh, I think embedded into one of these picks is one of your favorite picks of the year. We used to call it a 25-star pick. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But without further ado, Danny Moses, Week
3: 14. All right. got three picks. And let me just say last week when I lost the Eagles game, what I did say was if you wanted San Francisco, go bet Brock Purdy at NFL MVP over 10 to one before that game started. It's a much better way to play San Francisco winning. He's now the the uh, leader in the clubhouse, I think, at two and a half to one or something to be NFL MVP. There's always a hedge out there. Even if You don't get the team right. is my point. So three games this week. I'll start with Jacksonville and Cleveland. Yes, Trevor Lawrence may not play. Don't care. Give me Jacksonville plus three at Cleveland. What I saw from Flacco looked okay at the beginning, but then showed his true colors, I think, at the end there. So I think Jacksonville actually wins that game outright. Bengals, like we got backup quarterback central going on around the league, right? I and mean, the Colts, the Colts have really beaten nobody. First of all, they should have lost that game, Tennessee. They just got by Tampa Bay. They beat New England and Carolina. Yeah, they're hot, but they haven't really beaten anyone. And I think the Bengals are fired up after that win. They're a home underdog. Give me the Bengals plus one. I think they win that game outright. And then what I think is setting up, and this is kind of against the grain of what I normally do, you know, the Chiefs have lost back-to-back games twice in the last four years. I had to go back and look. I think that's what it is. Don't at me if I'm wrong, but I think it's twice because Reed has a great way of bouncing back. They're at home laying one and a half against a bye rested Bills team, which still really hasn't shown anything that they can play on both sides of the ball. I haven't taking the Chiefs really all year. Chiefs, one and a half point favorite at home. I take them, guy. Love those picks. I like what you did there. five-star, by the way. The The Bills have been
0: a disappointing team, to say the least, the entire year. By the way, for you Yankee fans out there, before we get out of here, in terms of the Etta James song, At last, my love has come along. My lonely days in the Bronx are over, and life is like a song as we welcome Juan Soto to the Bronx. Danny Moses, you are the man. I look forward to speaking to you next week. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.